Hey folks, uh, welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. I'm Roman Sifkin, uh, and I'm joined as usual by Rob Fay from Portland. Hey guys. And, uh, hey, and uh, Heston Hoffman as well from Portland. I guess that's the side of Portland. And uh, today we're decided to do, uh, well, we're, we're deep into our musical uh, reading and thinking, uh, but we're not quite there yet. We, uh, we haven't finished. We're still processing. So we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the, the context of the book and maybe the timing of the book where you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, German literature, um, but also other topics as they come to our mind because we just want to talk we just want to talk and then see uh, see what comes up because we haven't talked in a while. And like I said, because we're still reading Musil, we don't want to really dive into the book until we're completely done with it, um, which will never happen. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll never be done with it because it was never finished. Yeah, uh, and, I, and I think, you know, uh, we, we've been chatting a bit. And, and I think one of the things that comes up, and I think this is probably something that any serious reader can identify with, is when you start reading an important book, certainly a book as, as dense and as important as Robert Musil, it, it necessarily, it casts light and it casts sparks on, on other aspects of, um, you know, the history and the culture and the society, in this case, Habsburg Vienna, that, that sort of gave birth to all of this. So, you know, Roman and I and, and Heston as voracious readers, it's difficult to sort of contain yourself yeah. and you start, you know, uh, spinning in different directions. And, and so I think in some ways we, we want our podcast to start to reflect the fact that, um, you know, you, you, you spin in different directions and also the fact that, um, I, I, I think many intense readers also have multiple books going at once. And I'm not sure if this is, um, the best way to do it, but it's impossible for me to contain, I don't want to say my curiosity, which makes it sound like some kind of vain sort of thing, but um, you just start following leads. Um, yeah. And yeah. Well, um, that's how the mind works. The mind, you start, you start pumping the mind with certain, certain intellectual sort of content. And then, and then you get the sparks and you get uh, various reflections. So you have to, and I think if you're true to yourself, you follow that. If you just put blinders on and just read one book, um, I mean, it's great. It's like a laser concentration, and you can really get a lot out of that. Um, but if you if you sort of diffuse the light a little bit and make it shine around the corners of the book, meaning you know in the in the con the context, then you begin to see a wider picture, and that's what we're really after. We're not really right. here to review you, the books. I think you can get reviews anywhere. Uh, we're not here to talk about, you know, the plot. That's not that interesting. Besides, this book hardly has any plot. Uh, we're here to talk about the effect, the feelings that the book evokes and how it changes our view of history and our view of ourselves in sort of in a wider context, right? So we have Absolutely. to. And, and, and honestly, I mean, all the writers, well, I don't know about all, but many of the writers that I admire um, just from the biographical sketches that I've come across, uh, they all read that way. They all read that way. Like, you know, I think I mentioned before on this podcast, Whitman. Whitman had this uh, habit of having, you know, four or five books around him wherever he was, and he would open the book and read a page or two and then put it down and open another book and read a page or two, put it down, maybe stare into the window <laughs> for a little bit and then pick up another book. And I, I really like that model. Uh, I think it, it, uh, it reflects the way at least my mind works, you know. I, absolutely. And, and I think we also have to admit that, 
you know, we aren't just um, strictly people who are interacting with a physical book. We, I mean, I, I live probably uh, against my will to some extent in a, you know, a rich digital, digital experience of I'm constantly listening to NPR. Um, I've got various series that I'm streaming. Um, I'm, I've always got documentaries that I'm that I'm popping into. I mean, the the wealth of documentaries that are now on YouTube are are it's just crazy. So so my reading life is also, um, you know, uh, competing in a sense with this this kind of digital absorption of culture. Um, mm-hmm. And so so I, I think that's one of the things of of thinking about our conversations here in the podcast. Just starting to think about the idea of one singular topic and one singular book is just not the way that that I personally, you know, uh, absorb information and 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 read these days. I, I I actually have this idealized picture that I would sit in a chair in front of a fire, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe with a glass of sambuca, and I and I would just be reading Edward Gibbons you know, the decline and fall of the Roman empire for, for three months, that that's what I would do. And, <laughs> and, and I would, I, I want that. And it's interesting. But it's an idealized image. It's an idealized image. However, I will say um, in high school and then particularly in college, we're talking about a pre-digital high school and college experience and, you know, being somewhat of a, a isolationist by nature, I would have these very solitary, intense reading experiences. And I know you did as well. And, and I know Heston has as well. And I, I want to go back to that. I can't. Um, I sometimes can do that on vacation. So um, so the, the podcast, as we were producing it and organizing it, was fabulous. But I felt like it wasn't true to the way that that I currently read books. Does mm. that make any sense? Yeah, sure, sure. But like you said, I mean, things have changed and we have changed. Uh, yeah. So we it's it is kind of important to go with the flow, you know, keep up with the times, but at the same time you don't want to lose your center, your your sort of your orientation uh, that that got you there in the first place. Um so so speaking of, I mean, let's just jump into it. Um you know, when I started reading The Man Without Qualities, um and I got much, you know, about halfway through the first volume, I decided to start listening to some of the music that was being played, that was being composed at, uh, right at that time when the book is set, which is 1913. Now, Musil was writing this in 1920, so I, I took a look at sort of like a wider range of, of years. And, uh, you know, this this is when Schoenberg, who was, um, uh, you know, also in the whole Vienna circle, uh, just right around that time in that place. And we're talking about people like Kafka would stop by the coffee house, you know, uh, all these intellectuals would mingle together in a sort of pre-digital, like we we're just talking, sort of a chat room, <laughs> except, except it was a coffee house or many coffee houses. Um, people had their camps. But I, was, so I listened to this music and I, I realized that my reading of the text didn't match the, the, the sound that I was hearing. Or at least the sound that I was hearing really changed the way I was looking at the text because I was reading this book and in kind of the 19th century tradition, meaning it's relatively chronological. It's not, you know, we're not talking Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake here or even Proust. It's pretty straightforward prose. 
but the music that was being composed at that time gave me this feeling of of unreality or um I'm not exactly sure how to put this it um it really it really reinforced the fact that 1913 then the next year you had this horrible horrible violent eruption uh in the form of World War 1 and the music was really presaging that it was really kind of giving you this idea of like the old war the old uh, order was was disintegrating i mean you had what you had stravinsky with the rite of spring you had riots uh, when Alban Berg first premiered his um, his piece that he wrote for uh, Robert Altenberg, who was one of these uh, the Bohemians, Bohemian, one of these people who used to hang out in the Viennese coffee houses, and uh, in fact, I believe Musil even mentions him in the book, and he was friends with Musil. Uh, so he wrote this. Uh, Alban Berg wrote this um, set of uh, songs uh, for Robert Altenberg, and I started listening to them, and it's just, just so eerie and atonal, and it really gives you a sense of holy shit, this is, you know, something, something, something is happening here that's very different from, you know, yeah. Mozart and Beethoven. Yeah. And, <laughs> very. And, yeah. And, you know, honestly, my, um, my window into that world, um, of course, is musical to some extent, but also through um, uh, the paintings of uh, Klimt. And oh, yeah. so he, you know, did a series of um, portraits of, of, of women. Uh, there was a, I think, a, a one woman in particular that he did several portraits of. She was a uh, an aristocratic uh, uh, Jewish woman in Vienna, and um, but today I still find those paintings to be so striking in their color, in their um, he he's he's obviously paying attention to anatomy, but they're 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 so stylistic and so. Um, it's hard to imagine that again they were done in the early 20th century. But um, you right, it right on the heel. It caused a scandal, just like Schoenberg and and, and Stravinsky. It caused and people just couldn't understand it because Austria at that time, and the more I'm reading about Vienna, in the beginning of the 20th century, the more I'm realizing how how much of our culture came from there. The, the birth of modernism. You know, that's that's exactly where it happened. And why did it happen there? Because, well, I mean. I'm not going to tell you because, and this, there's a reason why it happened. But it seems like, it seems like, the the old world order, the you know the Franz Joseph, the Habsburg Empire, they really didn't have didn't have an identity. Uh, and you can see it in Vienna's architecture, in particular. Um, you know all these weird Rococo style you know, com combinations of you know uh, styles. Um, Greek you know, revival things, but they never really had their own thing until modernism. But that's that's why people in, in Austria, in Vienna at that time, really couldn't stomach it because it was so different from what they were used to. And what they were used to was ersatz. It wasn't really their own thing. It was a false, false beauty in a way because they were copying styles. They weren't producing their own thing. They were just copying things. Again, specifically in terms of architecture, but I think it also extended to the arts as well. The other arts but but the curious piece here and, and the three of us were chatting a little bit about this before we started recording is how is it possible that in the decline of a civilization and you could argue that i mean it it was its own civilization obviously it was a a branch of the larger german culture but um but it had these influences of you know the hungarians and the czechs and all this kind of stuff but um how is it possible that 
just at the nadar of this civilization, where, as you said, it architecturally they were burnt out. Mostly, they they. I mean, we now. I've been to Vienna years ago, and it it looks so lovely, but it's it's relatively new, right? And it was it was um, these facades, these beautiful facades for the the middle class of of um, of Vienna. But how is it possible that modernism, um, that all this innovation, sort of jumped out of a uh, a culture in such decline? And it makes me think of the United States in particular. And we were talking about. Um, there's a, a new book coming up by this New York Times columnist, um, and it's called The Decadent Society. Um, the author is Ross Dutate. And I, I read a lengthy uh, excerpt uh, in The New York Times, and it's, it's, I think it's really brilliant. And I think it, it, if you're really struggling to understand um, you know, our political culture and um, what's going on with big tech and um, the arts, et cetera, he, he really makes a great case for kind of stalemate and stagnation right now. But but it is interesting to think, could this be um, the the right recipe here as as the U.S. declines for- The birth um, of something new? Yeah, a mm. birth of something new and-, and um, Well, but we're going to Mars. Like it's it's happening, guys. It's, <laughs> we're on our way. It is. I, <laughs> yeah. I know that, uh, you know, Jeff, uh, Jeff Bezos, for all of his faults, which are legion, um, you know, he's- He's really committed to um, a kind of uh, uh, I, I'm just going to call it a, a like a environmentally ecologically vast spaceship that has you know foliage and trees and a society in space and that this is part of the right. wealth he's building. Um, you, you may know more about this than I do, Heston, but um, well, uh, if you, you think know, about it, like science fiction uh, in science fiction we're often looking for another planet that's inhabitable, right? But if you've got a massive spaceship that's completely self-sustaining, you know, you can grow food on it and, and, you know, create oxygen and water and all the things we need to survive. And it has its own sort of gravitational field. So you can walk around in it and your muscles don't atrophy. Um, Mm -hmm. Who needs a planet at that point, right? We can just sort of go out in these spaceships (laughs) and just sort of scatter into the universe. It's kind of uh, cool. sounds like a science fiction reader to me. <laughs> it does, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But you know, but but one of the arguments that Bezos had is that he believes that growth and expansion and exploration, and again, this is somewhat of a, a convenient argument for him being chairman of, of of Amazon. But he he believes that there that there needs to be um, there needs to be another platform beyond Earth to to. Uh, to be a receptacle for this, this all this human energy, that if we continue to just stay on Earth, you 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 can see what, what's going to happen. You know, um, but you know, it's it's funny because this is this is actually a continuation of something that happened more like in the fifties and sixties. Because I, you know, you know me, Rob. I am a big uh, Timothy Leary fan. You know, people like Robert Anton Wilson, Timothy Leary. You know, the sort of the 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 first wave of psychedelic futurists, and Timothy Leary. Um, was very strongly for sort of leaving the planet. And we're talking again in the 60s and you know 70s. He was talking about this way before Bezos, um, way before you know uh, Elon Musk, all these billionaires with you know with with these grandiose ideas. But these ideas were there. I mean, specifically, I still remember that that's the way he put it, Timothy Leary, escaping the gravity well. 
<laughs> yeah, we're living at the bottom of a gravity well on this planet. <laughs> And of course, him with his uh, prodigious use of psychedelics, he he sort of saw this saw this this way of escaping that uh, or or leaving that behind because it's sort of like the uh, evolutionary stage. You know, we're still tadpoles, evolutionary speaking. Yeah, uh, things are happening really fast. But I want to bring it back to Musil a little bit and modernism because. You know, how did they all start as far as modernism go? You know, Mallarmé, you got people like that, the first wave of modernism. And but then by, by World War One, uh, what happens? You get the, the destruction of really traditional values and liberal institutions. You know, so, sounds familiar, by the way, <laughs> the destruction of these institutions. And then you have this this kind of rudderless post post war years, which then culminate in what? Fucking Hitler, fascism. So again, we 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 seem to be going through the same cycles and same circles of of behavior and history, uh, but then we have this warning here. You know, we have this warning which we're seeing right now. It's raising its you know rearing its ugly head. Um, this kind of uh, fascist attitude. And again, to go back to Austria, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and and uh, compared, let's say, to all the 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 hate towards immigrants that we're currently experiencing. Well, what was Austro-Hungarian Empire? It was really a a, 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 a Frankenstein of a of a state, yeah. right? I mean, you had you had you had Germans, you had Hungarians, you had Serbs and Croats, you had Bosnians, Romanians, Slovaks, Ukrainians, Czechs. Czechs, Poles, Slovenians, Italians, and then of course you had Gypsies and Jews. Yes, right? yes, yes. So like at least twelve nationalities. Um, and and then some sort of a weird weird division of power between Hungary and Austria, where Hungary had a king, Austria had an emperor, uh, and they actually had a parliament, which was just a joke because the parliament just they would argue with each other, they would throw ink pots at each other, there was nobody listened to anybody, uh, and and so the, this hatred of, of of minorities and and immigrants and others you know people who are not like you really was kind of born there and you know the young hitler would go to these parliamentary meetings and sit in the in, um, upstairs in the audience and watch this and you know he took notes he took notes we got to get rid of these guys we got to get rid of these guys germans you know are the best and because that's what exactly what was happening at this and this at this time um, but of course, he took it to a uh, ludicrous extreme. But this was before World War One, as Stefan Zweig said. It was the golden age of security. Everybody kind of felt secure, even though underneath you had people like Lenin and Trotsky hanging out in the same coffee houses that Musil was hanging around with at. And but they were, you know, drawing very different conclusions and and coming up with very different um, sets of ideas. Musil, of course, was saying, well, we're not certain about anything. This is just uncertainty. You know, we got to sort of embrace that and go with that. Um, right. But people really said, no, we really want security. And how do we get security? By eliminating the people who are not like us, you know? So we, I don't know, I, again, echoes of today, right? With this, this crazy ICE agency and persecution of minorities and, um, and immigrants, uh, look what's happening in India right now with the crazy uh, you know, massacres of, of the Muslims. So it's I, um, ugh, it's it just gives me gives me the creeps, you know. 
Totally. I, I, I want to make one book recommendation, which fits in perfectly with what you were just describing, the the, the makeup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. There's this amazing, I, I actually discovered this on um, The Millions, which uh, if folks don't know, is a re really great site. Um, and it's the Transylvanian Trilogy. And Ooh. it's by, yeah, and it's by a, um, uh, a Hungarian writer. His name is Miklos Banfi. B-A-N-F-F-Y. And he actually was from a, a really, really long uh, aristocratic line of um, Transylvanians. And so Transylvania has gone back and forth over the years uh, between Romania and Hungary. I, I think currently the Transylvania region is sort of split um, between both. But it's a, it's a, a three-volume series it's an amazing book and it chronicles this, you know, young Transylvanian aristocrat um, in the late 19th century. And he's this, um, it's, you know, extremely ambitious young man, a little bit like um, uh, Stendhal in the red and the black. Mm. And he, you know, he, he obviously Vienna is the lodestar. Vienna is the, the, the central piece there, but he also has this, um, you know, nationalist streak for um, Hungary and Transylvania. And, and you follow him, um, you know, throughout uh, the, the, you know, the denar of, of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it's wonderfully written and it's, it's quite fabulous. And, um, you know, aristocratic culture in Transylvania uh, before World War I was amazingly rich with all these, you know, ancient rituals and castles and, I mean, really amazing stuff. Yeah, it kind of blew my mind. So, mm. um, yeah, the Transylvanian trilogy. Miklos Do you know when Bonfi. it was written? Say again. Do you know when it was written? Yes, it was written in, um, I believe, the nineteen thirties. Thirties. And okay. so I, I've got the book here, and it said, um, uh, "It's a stunning historical epic set in the lost world of the Hungarian aristocracy." Um, aristocracy just before World War One, written in the 1930s and first discovered by the English-speaking world after the fall of communism in Hungary. Banfi's novels were translated in the late 1990s to tr critical acclaim and now appear for the first time in hardcover. So they are there. He is not a stylist or anything like that, um, but he does write. Uh, it, it's quite uh, quite quite lovely prose. Um, and it it's, uh, has has a bit of that sort of Tolstoy war and peace sociological uh, uh, look into a world that you know as twenty first century Americans I mean you know uh, the world of the aristocracy is something we 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 have no access to um, so it was really really fascinating. It's, a, it's interesting because I I also picked up on a Hungarian writer. Uh, that I've read a little bit of, but I, I would like to read more. Um, I, I, I just cannot pronounce his name. Zent Kuti Miklos. Zent Kuti Miklos. So Miklos Zent Kuti. Uh, he, again, in mid-30s, about the same time, he wrote a book called Towards the One and Only Metaphor. And it's a book kind of, uh, you know, discontinuous uh, passages, you know, metaphors, aphorisms, uh, but he he just tries to sort of come back to the source, you know, the one and only metaphor, though he doesn't really do that. But the reason why I was attracted to that title specifically because of Musil and his use of metaphors and his 
and towards the many and many metaphors, really, what what this book should be called, you know, the, the man without qualities, because of the all the metaphors he throws at you. But it's funny that the again for me maybe a decade later, uh, a person from just the other side of the the former Austro-Hungarian Empire in Hungary writes this book uh, again about metaphors and how it's how it's everything's different again in the 30s. This is again a transitional period. Mm. Um, so it's interesting how, because again, they they were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. These, these are all the same. These are supposedly uh, countrymen, you know, fellow countrymen, so to speak. No, I mean, not in the 30s anymore, obviously, uh, but but pretty much, uh, because I think there was what uh, 1918 is when the Austrian Empire sort of completely fell apart, right, and was split up. Yep. Um, so. You know, there's so many threads that we can follow here. Um, yeah, here, here's here's one of the pieces, and and you know this, but um, that's hard for us to get our head around, and and also I think cuts any parallels between that uh, the Habsburg Empire in the in the U.S. And that simply is, it's hard for us to understand how tiny the cultural, scientific, literary circles were in Vienna. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew everyone. So, mm-hmm. so, and as you said, the cafes were off in the centers. It wasn't like it was, you know, the universities weren't playing the role that they currently play today as, as essentially a place to provide salaries to, you know, scientists, novelists, uh, you know, painters. And, and artists. So a lot of artists, artists associated with the academy nowadays. With- exactly. For good or for worse, probably for worse for the most part. But you got to live. You got to eat. Absolutely. Right? That's, and, that's the model. And so, right. And so, you know, Vienna in 1912 was also not, you know, wasn't as large as New York City today. So no. so these people knew each other. And I really that really came across. There's a, a book that I've tweeted about that I started reading uh, when I began Musil. Uh, it's called Wittgenstein's Vienna. Yeah. And, and I got a lot of reaction. People said, oh, I love that book. And and so that really lays out. um how tiny it was. And there's just, you know, like, for example, Wittgenstein grew up in this, you know, in, in, uh, his father was a merchant, uh, you know, extremely wealthy, you know, Brahms would would come over and, and have dinner. And so Wittgenstein, you know, w- would see Brahms. So so the connections are, you know, um, uh, uh, one of Wittgenstein's relatives uh, would, would go and see Sigmund Freud as a patient. So this stuff was it they they weren't as disparate as we think of in an american context no, today but we have no. you know i mean you could argue the united states has you know half a dozen important centers of of culture business art and science you know new york la san francisco chicago you know seattle i mean on and on and now new cities like atlanta and you know whatever so um so it, it makes me understand how a small creative minority, and I think, as you pointed out, primarily a, a Jewish minority, could could coalesce around certain ideas and themes, um, and 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 explode into this, you know, zeitgeist of of innovation and and uh, right, right. But then, but imagination. Actually, remember, there's again that that weird, not weird, but I guess it's very normal. Um, counter you know, like a reaction to that explosion was this this limiting view of like okay well the jews are coming up with this degenerate art that sounds horrible and looks horrible 
you know, we got to sort of cleanse ourselves from that. Uh, you know, so it, it together with this incredible, I mean, the birth of modernity. I mean, we st we're still modern. We're still dealing with all these things that were, quote unquote, invented back then, you know. Right. <laughs> and consciousness, um, you know, the way the way literature is written, the way music is written, the way music is thought about or, or you know, just culture is thought about in general was was really born at that time, at, the, at least you know, for the West. Right. Um, but again, we have that weird again not weird i keep saying it weird because to me it's obviously feels weird but this seems to be a normal human reaction of whoa whoa that's too much innovation let's pull back let's you know you know circle the wagons and you know eliminate all the all those people who are causing us to think too much totally and 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 look the 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 classic template for that is you had um the french revolution so you had you know french aristocracy in the church running things for forever. You have the French Revolution, which for all of its terror, you know, also there was a core of this idea of, you know, liberty, freedom, equality, freedom. justice. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it said, you know, you simplified it was we're going to sever the control and management of our lives by the church and by the, uh, the king. But, you know, you have that. And then, of course, you always have and this should always be pointed out, there is also a, there's always a fascist element on the far left. Li liberals in, in pursuit of purity uh, often will go and, you know, impose their liberalness by violence. And, and that mm. should always be pointed out. And, and I, I, how shall I say this in a very careful way? I'll just say it. What the hell? I, I'm, you know, I'm a Bernie Sanders guy and, um, you know, I'll vote for him. But there's a little speck of, he's a fundamentalist in the purity of his ideas. Right. And, and mm. you can see that in the, the, the progressive left always has that. And so, um, my point is that, you know, in their attempt to, to cleanse France of, you know, Bishop and King, uh, they went too far. And then what happened? You know, there was the counter revolution and, and it led right. to uh, Napoleon, right. It led to this reestablishment of order and then, um, you know, once he had consolidated power, um, you know, he wanted to spread the revolution, right? Right. So, um, so yeah, these these are, I think, innate human qualities that play out um, within the society, and and they're going to continue to repeat because human nature. Every time a child is born, you know, the same the same learning curve has to happen. I mean, I think the society depending on how advanced it is or, or, or how sophisticated it is can, or how moral it is, can, can sort of accelerate that learning or, or truncate some of the time it takes. But it, it, this is the thing about human beings is every time they're born, they bring in these same challenges and dilemmas. And that's why these things play out. Um, well, you know, you know the, I was, I was, I was following up on my sort of like, an, you know, various threads and, um, and this is somebody I've I've had his book for ever on my shelves uh, since college. Max Stirner. Oh yeah, the darling of the libertarians. You know, um, he wrote this book called The Ego and Its Own. Well, I think in the mid 1800s or something, something like that, 1840s, um, where he basically said, you know what? Forget about all these revolutions, all these new ideas. Not 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 forget about them, but basically said they will bring on the same crap that we are used to. You know, as soon as you have a revolution, you have a hardening of the arteries 
and a hardening of attitudes. And like you said, uh, the far left, the far right, doesn't matter what it is, on you know, the political spectrum you are, you right. get this hardening after some sort of um, an upheaval. But you also get a holy righteousness. Yeah. Our ideas are right, and we will implement them even if you resist. Right. And right. so you see that whether it's a it's it's a Stalin or a or a or a, excuse me, a Lenin or a Mao or whether it's a Mussolini or a Hitler or a Pinochet or, you know, these type of people. Yeah. Yeah. But again, these 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 are the same people who are also going to the coffee houses and listening to all the talk, the revolutionary talks, yes. the yes. modernist talk. They're also uh, participating in this milieu, um, yet they they come out with these very. I guess artists. I, I think uh, I think Clive James in his wonderful wonderful book um, Cultural Amnesia he makes this point over and over again. The lesson of modernism, uh, especially what we're talking about, the coffee house scene in Vienna in the 1910s, 20s. The lesson of that is that culture will not protect you. It will not protect you from these uh, crazy upheavals and these crazy people who take ideas and harden them into into mallets and hit them. Right. those mouths over your head uh there's no protection from culture uh, for f you know as a cultural as cultural people we are we just often think that you know we have this we read widely we try to understand the society and the culture we live in uh but it's no no shield against uh totalitarianism and fascism it's no yeah. shield i mean you have to be always on your toes and always say wait a second that's not right but you can't sort of paint over it uh and i mean that literally by you know by you know, creating artwork in order to sort of shield yourself from that. No, there, there was a there was a 60 Minutes um, segment a few months ago, and it um, we're discovering that there was some amazing um, chamber music that was created in the concentration camps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so you know, these were these were uh, Jewish intellectuals and musicians who were who maybe believed, yeah, that you know they were protected, and so there they were shuttled into these camps, um, you know, and they, they created this beautiful music, um, cause it helped them to stay alive. They would entertain the Nazi guards, but, but to your point, I mean, they still ended up, uh, in the gas chambers, um, despite, yep. despite being, uh, prolific violinists and composers, et cetera. So, well, it's, yeah. it's, I was also thinking about this as well, because I actually played one of these quartets. It was, it was one of the last things I ever played before I put my, my violin down. And it almost killed me. It was really, really hard. Um, it's Quartet for the End of Time by Olivia Messiaen, a French composer, premiered in 1941, right? And um, he wrote it while he was a prisoner, uh, a, a prisoner of war in Germany. Yeah. And uh, it was first performed by his fellow prisoners. Um, but you listen to it nowadays, you know, obviously it's available on YouTube and stuff. And it's just this, this eerie... It just tells you everything that's happening in music, though, you know. Um, and like I said, it's very, very tough piece to play. Uh, I never really was very good at the violin. I just, you know, so this was sort of like my my limits. I reached my limits <laughs> for this piece and I stopped. I'm like, I can't play anymore. And this is just this is killing me. Um, but yeah, again, that's why I that's why I think music for me as, as somebody who and I think for you, too, Robbie, I think for many people, music is is um has some sort of primacy in the arts as far as getting to us getting through to us right 
uh, even though it doesn't it doesn't spell it out, it doesn't actually tell you it, because it's well, sound. Well, it's I mean, isn't the theory? I think one of the theories is that um, prior to the development of of human language, that um, you know, uh, music, uh, whatever, banging on drums or banging on rocks was the first form of human communication. I mean, is that have you come across that uh, theory? Well, it makes sense, right? I mean, yeah. it makes sense. That's you know, probably vocalizing first as sounds and then as meaning. Uh, yeah. Sounds came first, for sure. Yeah. And uh, so so I think, you know, that explains. Joyce, Joyce, Joyce actually plays around with that in Finnegan's Wake. He's got a yeah. lot of these ba 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 wah 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 <laughs> kind, of, kind of passages where it's literally, you know, the, the birth of language. Um uh, and he's got all, all bunch of a bunch of theories and, and, and the books that he was reading sort of back him up at the time. But it's fascinating to read that you suddenly come across this almost like a childish page. You're like, what what the hell? What, what are you doing here, Jimmy? Uh, but it really was he was trying to sort of evoke the, the first sounds, the, the sort of the 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 rise of, of language out of sounds mm. and then coalescing into some sort of meaning. Um, and I think that's what Musil also tries to do. Musil, not not as far as sounds go, but he he just throws all these metaphors at us. He throws so many various ways of looking at the same thing, but he says never settle on one. You know, unlike this this Hungarian writer, you know, the one and only metaphor. He just like he went the other way, the the, the many and infinite variety of metaphors uh, that we live in, and we have to sort of sort through um, and stick whatever metaphor seems to fit at the time but then as soon as it doesn't really work or maybe five minutes passes and you have to throw away the metaphor and choose another one because uh you know my my landlady came back from the doctor yesterday and she was complaining to me like ah you know my i can't move my arm i can't move i'm like cooler you have to move life is movement if we stop if we call less on one even just intellectual and one idea Boom! You see, you have you have you have the, the the cessation of thought. That's why I don't believe things. I've this you know this is something from Robert Anton Wilson and again Timothy Leary, going back to my fascination with the '60s, uh, that they basically said belief is this is, is the the end of thought. That's when you stop thinking. When you start believing something, well, why should I keep thinking about it? I just believe it. <laughs> you know. In the- I, I I agree, but I I also feel like the irony there is that. It's a, it's a, it's ideas that propel us forward, that push us forward. But, but so maybe there is no contradiction. Ideas propel us forward, but then I suppose once they, once you invest too much in them, then you become stuck. But I, but I almost feel like ideas are like um, the rungs on a ladder, and and you you need to keep, you know, yeah. going forward. And and I. I, I'm a little bit fixated on this. So, so to go back to this idea that we're living in an age of decadence, right? An age where there's no more innovation. It. I was thinking of this the other day, like I was listening to um, NPR, my local affiliate OPB. And I, I can remember when I, I would turn on NPR and I would I would be exposed to ideas or interviews or conversations that would, that would, light bulbs would go off or I would hear something I had never heard before. And so that, that kind of cemented my relationship with this, this, uh, medium or this, Mm. this, this network. But I have to say that more and more, I find that NPR retains this sort of simulacrum of intellectuality, Mm. but Mm. I cannot remember the last time I, you know, it's, it's, 
it's far more interesting than anything else on on mainstream media. But it is no longer a place that has any new ideas, that 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 exposes me to new mm. thoughts, new new artists. I mean, e- even if they have an artist on, I know what they're going to talk about. They're going to generally focus on the person's, you know, um, uh, you know, personal background, biography. They, right, right, right. How do they feel about? You know, they're going to focus on their particular. Um, you know, uh, their gender or their, their racial background. There's a fascination with that and rightly so because of discrimination. But at a certain point, I think to go back into our politics, our politics is, is just dying from a lack of ideas. There's a lack of imagination there. And, and to your point, you know, we can have a good idea and we can, we can ride it for what it's worth. We, we don't necessarily need to like build a church around it. Right. 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 Um, but I, I feel I feel hungry uh, for for ideas, and so the only place I find them is books. I mean, that that's really it. And um, well, if you were living in in the nineteen teens, nineteen hundreds in Vienna, you would go to the coffee house and you would hear yeah. these ideas around you uh, being swirled and 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 digested or half digested, and then you know spit up again and then digest it again. It's just, the, sorry for the horrible metaphor. Um, but uh, it just, it just, you know, go, to use a, a Zen metaphor, it's like a finger pointing to the moon. Once, once you sort of see where the finger is pointing at, you have to, you have to get rid of the finger because otherwise you keep staring at the finger. It seems like we're all staring at the finger instead of the moon, you know, and there's a lot of fingers pointing and we're all looking at the fingers and are confused. But there's something there that we're not seeing, um, and that we should. I, I don't know. It's. It, I'm. I, I also think at the same time that uh, a culture, and I think I've mentioned this before, a culture that is so obsessed with politics is a dying culture. That's one of the signs of a dying culture, is that it's all all a flutter as far as its politics go. Um, let's just hope it's some sort of a phoenix, and out of the ashes we have something better that rises up. Uh, but then again, you go back to uh, uh, the ego and, his, and its own, uh, you know, Max Stirner, uh, who says, well, you know what? That phoenix is going to just rise again and, and shit all over us again, like like the previous. <laughs> um, um, and I like his solutions. I like his solutions, but I don't think it's going to be adopted uh, any kind of uh, uh, wider, wider, m- meaningful way because his, his solution, well, not a solution, his, his sort of uh, pointing out, the most important pointing out to me was that these ideas, like, you know, what's society, what's history, all these things, all these words that we put on these concepts are spooks. He actually uses the word, there's, there's spooks in our minds. They're not real. There's no such thing as society. It, it's, a, it's a kind of this amalgamation, amalgamated concept that we use as a, as a shorthand, but it's a yeah. shorthand for something that's indescribable. I know, I, I, I have this personal prejudice against the word community. Mm. I absolutely despise the word, and I understand the intent behind it. I understand there are, you know, people who are far better and for, more loving towards their fellow human beings than I am, certainly, well, that's for sure. But but I the word has no, it doesn't, it doesn't convey any information or any any detail, you know. Right. And I, I I just but people use I wish it you... discriminately. People use right. it all the time, and and we we kind of sort of know what they mean. But once right. you start using these words that don't really have a reference, are right. just kind of like these these um, 
you know, vague concepts and you start building, like you said, like, like the rungs of a ladder, you start climbing this, this ladder and you get pop and it's really no top at all. It's some sort of a vacuous space that you, you've created yourself by using these, by pulling yourself by your own bootstraps almost, which is right. impossible. Uh, so, but then you come, come up, come, come up with communism, you know, you know, Marx and Lenin and Trotsky, you know, certainly climbed that ladder, man, with all these concepts and look where they ended up and look yeah. where we ended up with, uh, with our own co concepts of, of, of enshrining democracy. Like, like it's some sort of, um, last thing on our human organization, last word on human organization. It's like, you know, it's like making it holy somehow, making it beyond yeah. reproach. Um, and yet here we are, uh, dealing with the products of, uh, of democracy, which are just horrendous. Now, this is not to say that, that totalitarian uh, systems are better. Of course not, but we have to be self-critical all the time. Even yeah. at, uh, uh, Paul Krasner, one of my favorite, um, writers from the, from the sixties, uh, an editor, he was a wonderful, wonderful person who published people like Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson. And he was actually the the editor for, um, um, oh my gosh, what's, uh, Lenny Bruce, Lenny Bruce's autobiography is edited by Paul Krasner. He just died recently. I, I communicated with him a little bit. He, he was born half a mile from here, from where I live, uh, on Broadway here in Queens. Um, uh, but he, he, um, oh, now I lost my thread. What was I saying? <laughs> just trying to describe him. And I lost my thread. Uh, Krasner. Yeah, Paul Krasner, but what was I saying about him exactly? Um, we'll, we'll play the tape back. <laughs> oh, crap. Sorry, guys. Um, uh, it'll, it'll come to me. It'll come yes. to me. But um, No, we were talking about word, words that, that, uh, that don't have any meaning. And, and you, were, um, you were reflecting on uh, you know, your, your, your love for the 60s in particular. For, so I, I assume you were about to uh, elucidate some particular word or series yes. of words that he... He took Something down. About, I, I just totally flew out. Yeah, sorry, brain fart. No, well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in, and, and yeah. you know, uh, Heston may have the same experience because we both um, we both are writers in, for lack of a better word, the tech world, and and so the word technology for me has become like you know community or or democracy. It it literally has no meaning, and and I, you know, I'm I'm part of the marketing team for our our company, and so literally at this point, we have made a conscious decision that the word technology is an anathema. It will not appear in any of our marketing because it it has absolutely no, it conveys nothing. Yeah, the, the pen I'm holding right now is technology. It you know, the cup I'm drinking from my mom, from the cup, it's, it's technology. So it really is a, such a, but it, yeah, you're right. It's just, but it's it like, had it's, probably it's, 10 years ago, it, it had, it conveyed information that was useful and helped you to establish a connection between, you know, listener and speaker. Mm. Um, and it, you know, it, it mostly meant whatever, what had happened after .com and then it had be, had happened with uh, what was going on in Silicon Valley, but it, it has stopped. And so um, there's a whole list of words that I wish would stop being used, <laughs> community being one of them. Oh, I remember now what I was, was going to say about Paul Krasner. He, uh, one of his sort of catchphrases was irreverence is our only sacred cow. Mm. And that's, I've been, I sort of try to live by that. Um, not that I believe it, but you know, 
it's a, it's a good guideline because as soon as you have some something that you enshrine as some sort of a even like technology like you said people just oh, just it just comes off the, the the lips so easy technology this technology that and we seem to know what we're talking about but we you know it's like you said it's so diffuse and so not on point that it it really actually muddies the waters instead of clarifying them you know so by being irreverent by by not sort of holding things sacred just because of tradition or whatnot uh, we are we are open to this constant renewal of our concepts of our terminology you know I, we have to be so careful we have to be so careful because like i said you build these castles in the air and next thing you know you have fascism or you have totalitarianism in some form or you have some sort of uh, uh, closing of the mind, you know, sort of a rigidity of the mind. You know, this yes. is the way things are, not this other way. Um, but I, I, I think that's interesting, and it, it makes me think that irreverence is something that our that people in power should be aware of. Irreverence, mm -hmm. though, might not work for for those who who do the the dirty, loving, caring, humble work of like being a mother, being a father, being the guy who serves food at the homeless shelter. Like the, the people who, I mean, I think we're, we're talking about the, the, the world of intellects, writers, leaders. I mean, I mean, right. When we talk about, cause I, I don't think being irreverent towards ideas would work for the people who really are, are on the front lines of like, for lack of a better word, like no, no, pass, I'm not, I'm not, pastoral I'm not talking care. about like wholesale, uh, wholesales or dumping of, of ideas or not taking them seriously. No, no, no. I'm just saying that uh, if if we do play around with ideas as, as intellectuals, as yes. sort of you know these cultural diggers yeah. that we are, cultural yes. miners, uh, we have to just remember <laughs> that that as soon, I, oh, I agree. Find, yes. as soon as we find a nugget of gold. We shouldn't enshrine it. We shouldn't make it into a crown and put it on our head and say, we found it. We're the king now right. or, or whatever, you know, it, right. it's just, it's just, you have to keep going. You have to sort of say, well, this is really wonderful. Let's see. Let's, let's examine this. Let's look at it. Let's weigh it. Let's right. determine how many carrots it is to continue we, to with metaphor. Because we, we, <laughs> you know, we, but always, we always have to remember that, that Lenin, as you pointed out, right. He was in Vienna as a young man. Um, Correct. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Was. So, so you know, Lenin was a young, earnest, progressive intellectual who who was hungry for a better world at some point. Who was not, you know, a person who, you know, uh, was in charge of a machinery that was, you know, uh, seeking vengeance on his enemies. You know that he became that. And so, so that's I, I think I think you're right, man. I think it's the intellectual class. That needs to be cut, need very careful of of turning ideas into churches, you know. Um, as you, sounded a, you sounded a bit like Bernie there for a second, Robert. Uh, did did I? <laughs> I? I told you I'm a supporter. He I, wasn't, I, it wasn't you know, all bad, right? He, he got my fifty bucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. It's, it's a lot to chew on, and uh, I think we should probably wrap it up. We're getting close to an hour, and we could just keep kibitzing like that forever. But I, I, just trying to concentrate it for the for the sake of the podcast, um, I think what we're trying to get at here is 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 various cultural 
and societal upheavals that, that happened. And we have a, a prime example here. I mean, really a prime example. It wasn't that long ago, really, you know, 1913, 1914, um, that not only not only happened, and we can have all these historical sources that we can look at and exactly how it happened, but we also have the cultural um, output of that era that really tells us in a way almost more than a straightforward his history book about about the transformation that happened around that time. And I think it's really it, it really is um, important to remember that it can't protect us knowing things like that, you know, being in, involved in culture and art will not protect us from the revolutions. However, it will, it gives us some solace. It certainly explains a lot of things and, you know, we, we can, we can learn from them. Um, so I think next, our next podcast, let's really, let's really dig into the text of, of Musil's books because the book, because it's really, um, I think it, we just kind of laid the groundwork a little bit today. Um, I'm really excited to have Janice Grill uh, as our guest uh, because she will definitely open up a lot more doors for us um, and also will help us with all the pronunciations and the names. I mean, my goodness, I mean, I, I tried, you guys, like Egon Schiele and, and Egon Friedel and all these, all these German names that I've been trying to pronounce correctly. Um, I've actually almost renamed my cat uh, <laughs> Oscar Kokoschka because... But then I was telling my daughter that it's, uh, it would have to be a transgender cat because Oscar is a male name. Kokoshka in Russian is a female cat, so it'd be perfect. You know, Oscar Kokoshka. <laughs> um, but all these all these people who were actually vilified and uh, you know Klimt and Kokoshka and and uh, Egon Schiller, speaking of, I mean, they were they were just they were coming up with something new, but then they were trashed by the establishment. Uh, because it was so new and you know maybe too too new. Um, so what if I'm just again just something to think about. What are these things that are so new right now? Are, are we are, since we seem seem to be going through a similar period? Is is something really really new happening? That are we are we saying this is just disgusting or horrible? It doesn't seem like that. It seems like maybe it's yeah. going to be a different kind of transformation or at least yeah. something that we are blind to right now that we can't see. I mean, where's the Schoenberg? Where, who is the next Schoenberg? Who's going to write the, you know, the Stravinsky Riot of Spring? Who's, who's, who's doing that right now? And how come, how come there are no riots about it? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's stupid, but something to think about maybe, I don't know. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, two things I just want to say to kind of finish out what one is, if you're asking me about music, I, I, you know, do try to keep up with music a bit. And you heard it here on the podcast. I'm going to say that somebody who's doing something incredibly innovative and is is pushing music forward is is a um, a band called King Cruel. And that's King and then it's K-R-U-L-E. And it's by this young British guy named um, Archie Marshall. And the music combines hip hop, jazz, rock, mm. um, in a way that is is so exciting um i i just found out that he's playing in portland and it's sold out i'm i'm totally bummed out but um you know heston i know that you're a music guy does that sound familiar king cruel yeah have you come yeah, across I've seen, it? i've seen some of his youtube yeah videos. yeah it's interesting yeah. yeah i i for some reason i i I was really listening to his albums a lot this week, and I, I just was exposed to him like a month ago, and I took the time to listen. And I, I really felt like 
this is what our time sounds like. And, mm. and I, I rarely feel that about, I used to, you know, I think maybe when we saw Roman and I, when we saw um, Pulp Fiction, you know, 25 years ago, I remember thinking like, this is what's going on. This captures something important. And I, I kind of feel the same about uh, his music. So kind of throwing mm. that out there. But um, one other thing I think, just to wrap up um, the conversation about the cafes in Vienna, there was just an article in the New Yorker, and I have I get their e-newsletter. In Roman, it's called the title "The Haunted California Idyll of German Writers in Exile." Oh yeah, I read that. Yeah, book. yes. So, so here, right. here's the line. Yeah. Here's how it starts. It says, uh, "Where where's the line?" Um, it says, in the 1940s, the west side of Los Angeles effectively became the capital of German literature in exile. <laughs> it was as if the cafes of Berlin, Munich, and Vienna had disgorged their clientele onto Sunset Boulevard. And I, th this, this has always fascinated me. You know, you had Schoenberg and Thomas Mann and, um, you know, uh, Adorno and yeah, all yeah. of these people. Uh, Stravinsky living in freaking LA, and of course you and it's I. It's crazy. It's a crazy LA. thought, really, because because we we both lived in LA. We know what it's like, and it's just it's just crazy to think that these people. Of course, it was a little bit different back then. It was still, you know, an immature city, so to speak. But it still must have been a paradise for them. Crazy, the crazy. And and so apparently there's a, he referenced a book which I'm going to read. Um, it's called uh, Weimar on the Pacific, which I guess is the the great title. You know, the one. Uh, the preeminent book on on that experience. So yeah, that's all I have. Um, and, oh, uh, one one, one closing thought because it just came up, and I think it may be something interesting. Um, I just read an article in the MIT Technology Review about more technology. That word, man. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, it's MIT. I mean, it's it's in there. It's the name of the institution too. So, um, <laughs> but uh, it it. You know about Moore's law. It's a it's a famous law. I, for, I do. At my at my company it comes up a lot. Right. So he since you're dealing with quote unquote technology, uh, Moore's law has been sort of the driving force of of our of our sort of cultural cultural and societal revolution, which is the digital the the, the digital revolution, right? But this article is saying that it's been pretty steady. You know, literally, it's a law. You know, a physical law. But it's not really, and it seems to be ending it seems to be coming to a close because of computing power has gotten so so good so so fast and you can fit these transistors on a chip that it's actually coming to some sort of a limit and i'm wondering uh, this is my closing thought i'm wondering since we are you know living with this digital revolution for the past 50 60 years and it really intensified in the past 20 30 years um you know with the advent of the personal computer and the internet I'm wondering if the end of Moore's law is going to sort of presage some sort of uh, some sort of ending to this type of the, this type of cultural moment, and and something else is on the horizon. Uh, but this might take another 10, 15 years. So maybe that's that's why we're not seeing all these new things, particularly right now. I mean, it's, it's that's why. interesting, but it, but it makes me think of um, you know this happened when you and I were in college. There was a book called uh, The End of History and the Last Man by. Um, oh, Fukuyama. Fukuyama. And yeah. you know, thing, things seemed really like, you know, the Cold War was ending, like, you know. Well, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the end of history. He was really, he was really bonkers to say that. It's just bonkers. But, for, but, but the point is, but the point is, the book was, I mean, people really lauded the book and thought, you know, I think he's onto something. And then, of course, 
I, I would argue that boom, 9-11 happened and history started again. <laughs> well, uh, well, again, to go back to Max Stirner, man, all these all these supposedly the end of times revolutionary things, they just lead to more of the same shit. Uh, or different shit, you know, it's, it's similar flavors or whatever, you know, it's just, it's not really, we, I guess we have this weird apocalyptic uh, end of times uh, gene in our brain somewhere where in our thinking that, that we, you know, teleological things happen for a reason so that at some point they will end because of a reason. Uh, it's just, it just seems to be a blind spot of humanity that we seem to be thinking in, in these terms, but I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a lot to think about, and I think it's I think we we probably should stop thinking about it <laughs> and enjoy the day. <laughs> <laughs> Small update on the awesome. tournament um, of books. the The tournament of books is underway. Yes. It started on Friday, so I don't know if anyone you know drew up brackets. My my brackets are already looking kind of bleak <laughs> after Friday, <laughs> but but yeah, it's it's underway. So if anyone's interested in that, um, the the uh, it's the morning news is the is the website where you can check out you know the judgment yeah, maybe we can post a link let's post a link on the on our on our page when we post the the, the podcast yeah good, yeah, good point yeah, I, I, I meant yeah yep. i meant to tweet about it and i just forgot so yeah okay awesome yep and uh nice and, and we'll also surface the link on our twitter account which is at feel bookish so please follow us if you haven't um and so I guess that's it. Yeah, yeah. Look, really looking forward to, like I said, next our next episode uh, because we're really going to dig into Musil. Um, we really just meandered today a little bit, um, but it's just so much to talk. There's so much to think about, really. Uh, and like I said, I'm still in the rabbit hole, guys. So I don't yeah. know if I'll ever emerge. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm, I'm actually literally thinking of, of learning German because I'm just so in in love with all wow. the things I've been reading. Yeah, no, that's that, that's how I felt with Proust. I started and I I started taking French classes. That, that's that's you a, taking French classes. That's right. Yeah, so that's a re, that's a real real sign of love. I I'm enjoying Musil. I I I I can't say I'm crushing on him in that way, but it's that's different. Cool, it's a different kind of thing. Yeah, because like I said, I, I even I had to take breaks. I'm not done with the book yet, but it led me to so many other great writers that yeah. I've you know known about cursorily or maybe haven't read a little bit, but now I'm really digging into it and I'm. Yeah. I'm really digging it. You got also, like, like Thelonious Monk said. Thelonious Monk said that you got to dig it to dig it. You dig, <laughs> dude. Dude, I, we we can't seem to sign off because I, I have to say one more thing. Did you <laughs> notice that um, uh, the jazz uh, pianist McCoy Tyner he died yeah. in the last 24 hours? Yeah, yeah. age 81. Very yeah. sad. What, uh, what a whole chain sidekick and and more than a sidekick really and his own yeah. uh, leader of a group i yeah. i almost i i stupidly did not go at iron horse in northampton when i was a student at umass uh, he was playing at the iron horse and people tell me hey, you gotta go you gotta go and it's like eh, and i didn't go uh, <laughs> yeah so yeah r.i.p mccoy tyner man is one of the really one of the last great uh, hey. Bebop era, yeah, that era, yeah, yeah, very nice. All right, guys, till next time. Thank you, guys. Bye. Take care. Thanks. Bye.